CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Do you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump and you ain't black? This Ben Jarofsky show, Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 in District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky show as I speak. It's Friday, May 22nd, 2020. And as you heard from that uh, quip, uh, that Dennis played at the top, the quote, uh, Joe Biden's latest gaffe. Uh, and uh, so that's where we are. If you hear this show 2,000 years from now, that was what was on the minds. <laughs> Joe Biden, the Democratic electorate decided, hey, this is a good idea. We'll like we'll nominate this guy to go. <laughs> I, I did not. I just want to say this right now, ladies and gentlemen, do not blame me for Joe Biden's position as a democratic nominee i did not vote i did not vote for him i did not tell anybody to vote for him that said i am voting for him in november by the way he gave me permission to touch him (laughs) joey b i've learned to love him though uh as we as we do with uh all ben jarofsky bonus shows i ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself so distinguished guest introduce yourself well, hello, distinguished audience. Uh, it's great to be back on the show, Ben. Hi, Dennis. Uh, I'm David Ferris. I'm an um, associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University um, and the author of a couple of books that we're going to talk about today. Yes. And uh, it's, uh, it's great to be on the show. I'm so bored otherwise in my whole life. So this is fun. <laughs> <laughs> a little break in the monotony of st- uh, being stuck at home. Uh, David Ferris is the author of a uh, book, Time to Fight Dirty, which I talk about all the time. Uh, Pack the Courts, uh, Past New Voters' Right Acts, uh, Statehood for the District of Columbia in Puerto Rico, Seven Californias, Revamp the Electoral System. In other words, Dems, don't be stupid. Start playing the game the way the Republicans play the game, and maybe you won't lose elections that you actually win. Uh, That was the advice laid out by David Ferris in his book, Time to Fight Dirty. And I'm always praising that book and telling people to either buy it or check it out of the library. You have a new book, David. Uh, The kids are all left. I have not read it yet. So I'm at your mercy to understand what it's about. Tell folks what this new book is about. Yeah, so um, The Kids Are All Left is about um, the the sort of the long-term drift of, of young voters to the Democratic Party and away from Republicans. Um, I think, like, you know, intuitively, if you're listening to the show, you won't be surprised that young people are, are leaning heavily Democratic right now. Um, but the book tells a, a kind of a longer story about how this has actually been happening since roughly 2004, um, when when young people in the 18 to 29 bracket started voting Democratic by double digits, um, more than the rest of the electorate. Um, and those, the, the, so that original cohort is now in their 30s and 40s. Um, like me, <laughs> um, and that, and now there's a there's like a huge block that spans about you know a 25 year long super generation um, <clears> of <throat> people that, that vote by double digits, and it's it's increasing over time. Um, and I think that you know the, the book is designed to, to puncture some myths about this um, because I think if you're a Republican strategy, you would look at that and be like, well, you know, when they get older, you know, like when they buy a house. You know, like when they start paying taxes, you know, like they're not going to do it anymore. Um, and so I, I bring some some research to bear on that, that um, that kind of disproves the idea that people get more conservative as they age. It disproves the idea um, that large numbers of people switch their partisanship after they turn 25 or so. Um, and it talks about why this is happening. Right. So um, I'm like I have two goals with the book. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to convince you that that all of these people that are currently voting Democratic and leaning Democratic 
are basically never going to change. And that's a huge problem for Republicans. Um, and I'm trying to explain why, you know, like, it's not like, uh, as you know, it's not like Democrats are the greatest uh, gift to get to the human species that have ever lived, you know, so like, why, why is this happening, you know? Um, so I, I kind of tell a story about, for, for millennials, you know, um, and sort of a younger generation Xers like me, it's, you know, it's the Iraq war, it's the Great Recession, um, there's a lot of political science that says, you know, if you're, if you're the, if you're the party in power, if you hold the presidency during a massive disaster, um, you're going to turn off everybody who's, who's coming of age, um, in that cohort, you know, that everybody is persuadable, you know, and there's a lot of people that are not persuadable and we can get into why that is. Um, but Republicans oversee, oversaw two catastrophes in the space of six years. <laughs> and it, it just destroyed their standing with millennials forever. Like they're never getting those voters, you know, they're gone, kissing goodbye. Um, the big mystery is really why prior to the COVID crisis, um, the, the sort of the, you know, the younger folks were not leaning Republican under an ostensibly booming economy. Um, and, uh, so it's really, it's just, it's just policy, you know, it's, it's culture stuff. It's, it's the diversity of those groups. Mm-hmm. And these Republicans just seem like they wake up every morning and they're like, how can we, how can we discuss to young people the most? today um and uh, you know if you saw ben senator ben sass's uh quote-unquote graduation uh, address last week um really I, I mean it's we all laughed about it but it's such a it's such a good example of the contempt that republicans have for young people you know um because the, the speech was centered around the idea that young people are too are too weak to climb ropes um and it's like no, uh, they're not actually. Um, but, uh, it's just like the, this is a dripping with contempt for the, for the aspirations of young people, the idea that everybody's a snowflake and they'll get a trophy and all this stuff. That holds, of course, you hear on the left too, but, um, I think it's much more prominent on, on the right. Um, is, is just, uh, is a good integrator of the way that the, the Republican Party's cultural politics right now are, are just a massive turnoff for young yeah. people. Let, let, let's just, um, since you mentioned, let me just do, uh, talk up a little bit about uh, Ben Sass. I have to confess, I'm not quite sure how he pronounces his name, but he's a Republican senator from Nebraska. He's born in 72, so if my math is correct, he's about 48 years old. Uh, he went to Harvard, mm-hmm. so uh, he uh, has... You know, you would call him an elite. He went to Harvard, you know. I'm just, hey, I'm just using Republican language. And yeah. uh, he's a Trumpster, a MAGA yeah. hat His dissertation won an award. I mean, he's... <laughs> What's that? I said his dissertation won an award yes. from, like, Yale. You know, I mean, he's not he's not salt of the earth. No. You know what I mean? Yeah, he's not salt. And a very bizarre speech because his father was a gym teacher and his father was a football coach. And so it was a virtual speech. We never, we actually haven't, uh, David, we haven't played it. We haven't talked about it on the show. So it's probably good we're doing this now. Uh, it's a virtual speech. And so that may have impacted him to a certain degree because he's looking into his camera in his house. I don't know where he gave it. Uh, and he just found like his inner comedian that he wanted to do. And it was this like <laughs> ceaseless riff. It wasn't just contemptuous of, the graduates who can't climb ropes, don't even know what rope climbing is, you know. But look of older people, his football coaches, gym teachers, his parents, just like threw everybody under the bus and then drove over it. And I'm like, yeah. what the f- is this guy thinking? You know, I mean, it's not even that yeah. funny. I mean, uh, I, I've watched a lot of graduation speeches in, in my role uh, as a professor. <laughs> Um, and I, I'm sort of like a, I'm into it as I'm kind of a connoisseur of horrendous speeches in the same way that I'm a, I'm a connoisseur of bad wedding speeches, which is one of my favorite things in the, in the whole world. Um, and, uh, we've had people come in and, 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 and just drip contempt for the students, you know, like, uh, you know, your education's worth nothing. Um, you know, uh, you know, congratulations on your debt, everyone, you know, like, I mean, you, you see people come in and say like, just crazy. There are people that come in and talk for like 40 minutes when you're supposed to give a five minute speech. Um, just a complete lack of self-awareness. And that's the lack of self-awareness is what you see from Ben Sass there. It's like he's trapped in his house like the rest of us. Um, and he's like, what can I do to be funny? Like, why don't I make 
why don't I make fun of everyone involved with high school? <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, it just, you know, it didn't go over well. Um, but it, but I think like scratching the surface of that speech, what you see is um, is a belief that young people are, are weak and soft, you know, um, when in fact it's like, you know, Ben Sass's generation and, and, and some people slightly older than that that really kind of like wrecked the country. Um, and young people are just living in the world that we made for them, man. I mean, I, I hate the I, I hate the contempt for young people. It just drives me crazy. Um, and in and, and the, and the book, the the way I conclude the book is a, is like a little message to older people, where I'm like, why do you, you know, why we not listen to the young people who are telling you what they want? And you don't have to do it uncritically, but like, why why do you just dismiss it all with a wave of a hand? Like, that's just so frustrating. Well, it's and uh, it's bipartisan to a certain degree because I remember I may have talked to you about this in 2016 when Bernie uh, was running against Hillary Clinton and Bernie was advocating uh, free public education free public college education and the blowback was from Hillary Clinton supporters was surprising I mean that's such a basic democratic value you you, you know what I'm saying like and they trounced it. Yeah. You're making a promise you can't keep. You're spoiling kids. I got a. I had to work for my scholarship. You know, it, this, right. <laughs> this is one of my favorite themes, David. The way people reinvent their lives. Okay, you know yeah. what I'm saying. People, when they go back, the older you get, you're younger than me. You haven't hit this. You what? In ten years, you're going to be hanging around <laughs> with people. They were all poor. They all worked themselves up from poverty. You know, they walked twenty miles to school. It was harder yeah. than. Yeah. It's people reinvent stuff. The, right. That generation was as pampered as any other generation in this country. So, but I mean, yeah. even if you take it at face value, like if you went through hardship, don't you want? If you could make a world where that hardship doesn't exist for your children, for your grandchildren, why wouldn't you want to do that? You know, uh, the hostility to free public education is, is just so crazy to me because one of my favorite things to do is, is uh, you know, I tell students about how much co- how, how much college costs in Europe. You know, <laughs> and they look at me and they're like, "Can I go to Can I go to college in in, in Europe? You know, can I go there? <laughs> like, why am I stuck here in America where things cost so much? You know." Um, so it's just, yeah, I mean, and that's a, but that's a policy, right? That's like, that's, that's repulsive to young people. Um, you know, the fact that people have to go into triple digit debt, uh, six, you know, six digit debt to go to college. And um, it's just, uh, if you, if you take, we've got 20, 20 something years of polling from the Harvard youth poll, which, which actually polls people under 18, you know, like uh, 13, 14 year olds to 18 year olds. Um if you line up all the policies that we all argue about all the time in politics, you know, taxes, education, healthcare, uh, foreign policy, all this stuff, um, the Republican Party is, is just completely out of step with uh, with what everybody under the age of about 45 or so wants. Um, and it hasn't caught up to them yet because young people don't vote as much. Um, but they're but they're coming, you know, they're coming for us. All right. Um, now that gets to a, a point I wanted to raise in in relation to uh, your argument that thesis and the kids are all left. Uh, the, and that is it, the voter turnout. So, okay, um, I'm with you that uh, the younger you are, the more likely you are to be to the left of the spectrum, uh, but you don't vote at the same rate as older people. Uh, right. So how does that work into your thesis? Yeah, I mean, if young people voted at the same rate as old people, like, you know, Donald Trump would not be president. Um, and so the way to look at this is to think about it in terms of, the, you know, take that as a given, right? Um, you, you know, the, the, the rate of voting for young people may fluctuate. I think it's going to be quite a bit higher this year um, than it was in like 2012 or something, right? Um, but, it, you know, you vote less when you're young, you vote more when you're older. Like that's just a pattern of American politics that goes back decades. Um, so what you want to think about is the, is the, is the composition of the electorate and, and the different generations that, that comprise that electorate. Um, and we know that the, the oldest voters um, in the United States, up until recently, up until the COVID crisis, um, were were you know were heavily uh, heavily Trump, you know, um, by double digits, um, and they're they're dying off, right, and being replaced by by the younger folks who are super heavily Democratic, but don't turn out that much. Um, so the the thing to the thing to think about is that uh, that's true, right, and that's a problem for the left, um, but it's less of a problem when you have like a 30 year swath of the electorate leaning left 
because we're seeing the sort of the leading edge of that trend um, aging into into very high voter participation rates now. Um, so the so the so again the youngest cohort uh, of you know the, the oldest cohort of people that voted against Bush by double digits is now in their forties, mm-hmm. um, and those people are going to vote. Um, and the thirty-something millennials are, are probably going to vote this year. Um, and and the the sort of the fraction of the Republican leaning coalition is being reduced every day, um, particularly during this crisis, um, which is you know um, it's just tragically claiming the lives of, of people in their seventies and eighties disproportionately. Um, and so uh, you can model what the electorate is going to look like this year, four years from now, eight years from now, you know, um, and in eight years, the silent generation, you know, the Joe Biden's <laughs> Joe Biden's generation is going to be gone uh, for the most part. Um, and what you're left with is uh, the, the younger boomers, uh, the people from 55 to 64, 1955 to 64, when they were born, is actually the most Republican cohort in the country. So they're going to be around for a while. Um, but it's like you're eliminating uh, the oldest cohort of the electorate, which is which is more Republican but slightly less so, and then you're replacing it like every day, every day, like a Trump voter dies, um, and is replaced in the electorate by like uh, like uh, uh, an 18 year old with a jacket and subscription, you know. So um, it's uh, it's relentless. It takes time, um, but I think you're going to see the results this year, um, and I think you're especially going to see the results starting in 2024. When I think the Republican Party is currently constituted is going to be incapable of winning a national election unless they change. Um, so the book is kind of like, uh, read it if you want to feel better. You know, like, are you depressed right now? Go by. The kids are all left. Um, and, and you might have a, a little bit more <laughs> optimism about the future of American politics. Uh, if you're of the leftist persuasion, that is. Yeah, if, right, right, right. If, if you're, you're not, MAGA, don't wait, wait, yeah, it's not for you. Uh, <laughs> and can you purchase? It's it's available online right now because obviously the bookstores are open uh, in this. Yeah, uh, the bookstores are open. So, you know, you know what your favorite neighborhood bookstore is. You know, I did my launch event at uh, City Lit Books in Logan Square um, in 2018. Uh, we moved since then, so we're actually closer now to like uh, Women and Children First. Uh, and they're, they're all taking online orders and you can pick them up. Um, kind of curbside or they'll, um, so, you know, some, some stores are doing curbside pickup, some stores are doing delivery. Um, the point is you don't have to, you do not have to rely on Amazon to get this book. You can get this book from any major bookstore or retailer, uh, major or minor retailer in, in the city of Chicago. Um, and if you do want to do a big online retailer, you can go with uh, IndieBound. So, um, Anything to support these struggling local bookstores is really important. All right. Now, before we move on to uh, some of the topics of the day, uh, I want to take up the, the the point that you made uh, early on about what a Trumpster would say in response. And I'm going to try to remember this old quote, which I know I will butcher, a combination of my advancing years and my dyslexia. Uh, but it's the one that goes, if you're not a socialist when you're young, you have no heart. And if you're still a socialist when you're old, you have no brain. This is a wisecrack that's been made. Right. I'm sure you've heard it many times. So the notion is, is that in, oh, yeah. invariably, as people age, they will move right. It just happens because they get grumpy and their breath gets really bad. Uh, so what's your response to that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, take a tic-tac, first of all. Second of all, um, yeah, uh, so that's in the book, right? That's a, that's a quote that's attributed to, to all kinds of people. Um, it's attributed to Churchill, uh, attributed to people even before Churchill. Um, and it has a lot of intuitive resonance with people because I think we all know someone in our personal lives whose politics flipped really dramatically in a way that, like, you know, screwed up their social networks. Um, you know, my dad, my, my, who I love very much, wonderful man, uh, was a was a Marxist in the seventies, and is now like I don't know. He says he didn't vote for Trump, but like he's obviously very happy about you know, until recently he was very happy about what was going on. Um, so he had like a very dramatic personal transformation. It cost him some friends at his work. Um, my mom is still kind of a communist, so that's that's an issue. Uh, but they're still married, so it's it's fine. They love each other. They just don't talk about it that much. Um, and so, you know, in my life, like his transformation, it's like a, it's like such a big deal in our family because he was such an outspoken leftist when he was young. He, he wrote a book called Revisionist Marxism when he was in grad school. Um, and uh, and it's, everything's totally changed. But um, And there was a, a, a book a few years ago called Exit Right. Do you remember this? It was a, 
about a bunch of leftists who moved to the right and shaped the 20th century, you know, like Ronald Reagan, um, David Horowitz, who was uh, a student activist and, and became like one of the craziest right wingers in the country. So these kind of people, right? And so what I tried to do in the book was, was just, you know, I, like, is this true? Right? Like, does this actually happen to people? And of course, in a society of 350 million people, this obviously does happen to some people. Um, but there's no evidence that there's a consistent trend for people to change their partisanship from left to right as they age. Um, precisely the opposite, in fact. Um, that is, uh, your partisanship is pretty much set in stone by about 25. Um, and then you get less likely to change as you get older. Um, so that, you know, voters in their 60s and 70s are like unflippable. You know, you may switch candidates between elections idiosyncratically, but your, your underlying partisanship and ideology is not going anywhere. Um, and so they've done, the political scientists have, have done some research. It's like my last book, right? Like I'm, I'm largely conveying the findings of professional political scientists to a, to a general audience. Um, and uh, what they find is that there's only like three or four things that can flip your partisanship um, as an adult, right? One, you get divorced <laughs> because there's going to be a lot of those coming after this is over. Um, you get divorced. Um, and... Uh, yeah. You know, you you <laughs> you embed yourself in an entirely new social network, and that that can change your mind about some things. You move, you know, if you moved from like Brooklyn to South Dakota, uh, and you stayed there, there's there's a pretty good chance that if you surround yourself with like rural South Dakotans for long enough, um, that their their views might kind of seep into yours, and your partisanship might flip. But um, these are rare events for most adults, right? To 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 embed yourself in a completely different partisan community. Or to marry, you know, to get divorced and marry someone uh, who has totally different political views than your than your previous spouse. Um, and so we're we're talking about pretty small numbers. I mean, people do change, people do flip their partisanship, uh, but there's absolutely no evidence that we have in social science um, that that people tend to get more conservative as they age. By the way, my, um, my and, and go ahead, finish your thought. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, my my solution to the uh, the problem that Democrats have with the uh, electoral. Uh, Congress, which this is one of our, our, my favorite riffs that you go on. Why they put up with it, I'll never know. Because only it's only twice in the last twenty years that they've lost the election, even though they won the election. So you figure, yeah. common sense would say move against it, but no, not the Dems. Uh, but my solution is just you know take a whole bunch of people from California and make them move to Wyoming. Boom, took care yeah. of that problem. But you're saying, no, yeah, what yeah. that happened, they would come to Wyoming and start voting like MAGA hat wearers. Is that what you're saying? But this is my next book, Ben. Honestly, this is like, I've got like 45 ideas to dismantle Republican power. Um, <laughs> and a, like a California colonist program is, is one of them. Uh, another one is like put a national, like a 100,000 student national university in the middle of Nebraska. And you flip Nebraska. Uh, you know, I've got some ideas. Yeah, that's know. a good idea. <laughs> there goes Nebraska. <laughs> Uh, and then the Demo then you watch Republicans overnight would be denouncing the Electoral College as the undemocratic right. system. Uh, they would hate it. Look, if, if, the, if things had gone the other way in 2000, like if Al Gore had won the election while losing the popular vote, there would have been a tent city, uh, it, it, like in DC for the last like 20 years with Republicans camped out and demanding that the Electoral College be abolished. Yeah. Like they would never have shut up about it. No, and uh, and to that point, let me read to you. I told you I was going to do this. Uh, the, this is one of my favorite themes on this show: is how Democrats play the game of politics and how Republicans play the game of politics. The Democratic uh, way of playing it is, well, uh, nominating Joe Biden on the grounds that yeah. a nice guy will win over voters. Meanwhile, the Republicans have—it's been an onslaught of attack ads against Joe Biden, uh, making up anything they can to, to, yeah. to uh, turn people against him. So here's, I just uh, got this alert from one of these Trumpster groups that somehow or other picked up my email uh, and I get a hundred a day, I would say. I'm not, and that, I'm not exaggerating, about a hundred emails a day. So I've, I've learned one thing about Republicans, they figured out the internet. So here we go. Here's the headline. Get your thoughts on this. Uh, here we go. Must win states are slipping away. And it's addressed to fellow conservative. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, somehow or other. That's I'm you, on this list. That is yeah. absolutely you. 
Sleepy Joe Biden's far-left super PAC just announced plans to pour $10 million into ads targeting, targeting swing state voters ahead of the election. This means battleground states across the country will soon be filled with leftist smears on the president and his Republican allies. The left has united behind Joe Biden. In fact, the only thing bringing together the liberal establishment and the ultra-progressive base is their shared hatred for President Trump and his MAGA agenda. <laughs> See, I'm not the only one who calls it MAGA, okay? This is from the conservatives. Yeah. They're willing to do anything to capture the White House and the Senate. The time to defend the conservative agenda is now. All right. Uh <laughs> David, your thoughts on this uh, email that I received from the Trumpsters? Uh, you know, um, campaign emails are like a like a sort of side fascination of mine. Um, like uh, during the primary, I was on Joe Biden's mailing list, and you know, they get increasingly like paranoid. And you know, have you ever like right in the lead up to an election, you get the emails that are like, David. All is lost, you know. <laughs> We're all gonna die if you don't open this email. Like the dog gets it, you know. Yeah. Like they, you know, the whole strategy is to get you to open the email, right? Yeah. Like they gotta put something outrageous in the headline. But the Trump people really distinguish themselves by having the whole email be insane. <laughs> you know, uh, it's like the Democrats. It's like you gotta do what you gotta do. You know, like I, if this is what the data says gets people to open email, that's fine. You know, if you gotta tell me the sky's falling, the sky's falling. But they open up a Democratic email and it's like, hello, sir. Uh, we would we would love to have your support in this political campaign that we're running against the other team. We're, we are one of the teams, and the other team is the other team. And it would be great if you could help us out. You know? yeah. uh, whereas the, the Trump emails are just nuts, man. Like, I mean, first of all, like 10 years ago, it would have seemed a little bit weird, you know, to, to be using like this like casual, stupid, ad hominem nickname about, about the other person yeah. constantly in your, in your campaign emails. You know, so Sleepy Joe. Yeah. Um, who does, you say what you want about Joe Biden. Sleepiness is not the problem, you know. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's a little bit old. He's, he's, he's not the most coherent person, but he's not sleepy. He's awake all the time, you know. He's, he's busier than Trump is. Did you see his public schedule today? It was like, go to the pool, and then Kaylee does a press conference, and he's not doing anything. And I mean, like, if anybody's, if anybody's sleepy, it's you, bro. Um, but, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it's just, it's, just, it's like weaponizing normal politics to scare people. You know, it's like, oh, like, Joe Biden's going to go up in the air in battleground states. It's like, what do you think an election is? You know, like, you guys, you're, you're the ones that did Citizens United, and now you're upset that people are taking out ads in swing states? Like, I don't understand what you expect Joe Biden to do if he's not going to advance his far left agenda, you know? Should he sit on his heels? Should he just like uh, just YouTube from his basement and like, you know, tweet? Um, by the way, if you are on Twitter all day, like the rest of us, you know, nothing else to do. Um, there's like multiple Biden parody accounts that, that actually are just like the one thing giving me life right now. Um, <laughs> one, one is a Biden uh, insult machine. So it's just it's like, uh, you know, like uh, I'm going to stuff you in the in the rain barrel. Yeah. The milk delivery man, you know, um, it's, uh, yeah. it's really, it's really good stuff. Well, his latest today, uh, you ain't black, which he's already apologized for. I tell you, not yeah. one vote will be swung one way or another from that thing. I guarantee you that. Okay. Guarantee. No, you this that. is, this is just jelly season stuff. You know, I mean, should he have said it? No. Uh, was he obviously kind of just joking and trying to be cool with his, you know, with his, his black hosts? I think yes. Um, and it's just, you know, it's like one of these painful things where like, like super old white guys try to be, you know, hip with the young diverse crowd, you know, and they're like, you ain't, you ain't black, you know? Yeah. yeah. It was bad. But like, again, here's a Democrat, you know, it's like, he's like, oh, I did something wrong and I need to apologize for it. Whereas the, you know, the reigning ethos in the White House and on the right, it's like, you know, Trump would be out there being like, I never said that. You know, if somebody would play the tape. Yeah. yeah I, like, this is, this is yeah. you, right? This is you on the tape, right? And he's like, I didn't, you know, I didn't say that. Um, and then Kaylee McEnany would call it fake news. And then like, you know, the Federalist would, would run six articles um, about how Obama did it too. And, you know, it's like this whole like wandering cycle where they avoid accountability for anything. Whereas like Democrats are still like, I'm so sorry. Yeah. I said a bad thing. Like, I said a bad thing. Uh, please God, please forgive me. Please yeah. Forgive me. No, that is so 
democratic. You're absolutely correct. And uh, I mean, it's really pronounced with the Tara Reid, E. Jean Carroll thing, which we'll get into. But uh, having said that, before we go to to Tara Reid and E. Jean Carroll, uh, your thoughts on what what if Biden had done Trump way? Do you think he could have got away with trying to skirt around? (laughs) Just if he had employed the Trump tactic, do you think that would have been a good tactic to choose? Or do you think that this is just the way Democrats have to do things? Um, sorry, could you repeat the question? Ben? I, In I other words, if, if, if Biden had responded the way Trump would, just the way you outlined it, like sort of denying yeah. that he said it, pretending that he didn't right. say it, <laughs> right. changing the subject, counterattacking anybody who criticizes him. Do you think that would be uh, a more successful tactic? Or do you think it's just the way it has to be with Democrats where they apologize all the time? It's a great question. You know, I mean, I think like when you say something that is offensive to one of your core constituencies, I still think it's smart politics to apologize, you know? Um, and so, uh, you know, not, not bringing any fresh news to your listeners here, but Democrats need, you know, every African-American vote that they can get everywhere, right? It's a critical part of, of Democrats winning power. Um, and so when, when Biden screws up and says something offensive, you got to fix it. You know, I mean, in an ideal world, Joe Biden would not be the nominee going out and saying like weird stuff on, on YouTube. But like, here we are. Right. And so I still think that's the right thing to do. Where I think that, like, you do want to kind of adopt a little bit more of a Republican mindset um, is about sort of broader policy issues. Um and, the, you know, what's been going on in Congress is a great example um, where this like three trillion dollar uh, bill that passed the House uh, that's going nowhere in the Senate until Democrats capitulate on, on X, Y and Z to McConnell um, does not include the ongoing an ongoing stimulus payment to Americans. So I think it's like the only thing really economically that's going to get us out of this crisis. Um, and they did it because they were like, oh, I don't know, the media is going to cover this if we say that we want, you know, twelve hundred bucks to Americans every month for the next three, four months. Um, and it's sort of like this uh, this preemptive capitulation to the narrative builders <clears throat> at the New York Times or whatever. You know, it's like you're afraid. Well, I mean, <clears throat> the Democrats remain very afraid of what the headline writers are going to write about their policy proposals. You know, um, you saw it in this. You saw it during the primary um, when Democrats farmed out their um, their debates to all of these moderators who were like, "How will you pay for your stupid, insane proposals, Bernie and Elizabeth?" Um, and it really, I really think that those, I think that questioning at the debates really altered the trajectory of the whole race. Um, and so that's where I'm like, don't apologize, you know, like, don't, don't explain how you're going to pay for it. Um, don't engage with this, with this nonsense, uh, 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 hectoring about the cost of things. Like, don't feel like you, you know, if you have a good policy idea, stand behind it. Um, if you have a good idea, about the direction to take American foreign policy, like stand behind it, you know, like don't adjust your strategy to fit the needs of an imaginary, like New York Times reporter who's going to write a bad headline about you. You know, when you screw up and you alienate people in your constituency, apologize. When you're doing good politics, good progressive politics, stand behind it, fight back and fight hard. Like, you know, the, the way to, the, the, the time to deploy those emails that are like hostile, you know, and are like, these people are crazy is when you're defending something that's like really important about the future of America. You know, like if you want to insult people, insult them for not believing in free public education. You want to insult people, insult them for not believing in Medicare for all, which is like the most obvious thing in the whole world at this point, because 30 million people are about to lose their insurance. Right. And people are like, Biden said something offensive on his YouTube podcast. It's like, okay, fine. Right. Apologize. But like, you know, Use your strategic ruthlessness for the right thing, you know, and use your, um, you know, your sense of decency and your sense of obligation to the truth for the right thing. Does that make sense? Like, you know, uh, apologize when you have to, to keep your coalition together. Apologize if you have to, if you, you know, like the the deplorables. And deplorables is a great example of something that should have been walked back a lot quicker than it was um, or, or something that should not have been said at all, you know. Um, but, uh, and so this isn't a case where Biden should have just like dug in his heels and been like, I, you know, how dare you question me? Like, obviously you aren't black if you don't vote for me, you know, like that's what Trump would do. Right. He'd be like, you know, 
you, you, uh, I take your I take your race card away from you. <laughs> if you vote for the other team, you, you don't get to call yourself African American anymore. You know, like um, so he you know he can't take that stance, right? Like because Democrats are too like reality based to believe Joe Biden's spin about this comment mm-hmm. as anything other than like he screwed up, right? Yeah. He screwed up and he apologized. You know, actually, when you made the deplorable uh, reference, I, had, I was thinking I'm thinking about what you just said when he. Hillary Clinton's deplorable comments came in a, my, if I'm, my memory is correct, it wasn't a public speech, correct? It was a remarks right. to, okay. And so I, in a million years, Donald Trump would not apologize for if he used the word deplorables about the Democrats. And so no. the, 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 the argument you're making is when you insult or denigrate your base, that's when you apologize. But if you insult the people who aren't going to vote for you, so what? And this is the thing I, Democrats again. So they're all still to this day. Oh, terrible that she called them deplorable. They weren't going to vote for her. Not one vote changed because of deplorable. I'm telling you right now, the people that she was saying are deplorable weren't going to vote for her no matter what. And the people who like the fact that she called them deplorables were never going to vote for Donald Trump in the first place. But Democrats... This is to your point, David. Oh, there's still just, oh, you know, we can't say anything bad about the other side. We have to be right. afraid of their own status, like afraid of their own status. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I just like in retrospect, I would have preferred that that comment be made like after she won the election. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Even if it was like 1% of the electorate or something that she offended, like, you know, it was such a close election that uh, it, I do think there was a little bit of damage from that remark. Although, who knows? You know, when you throw in like Jim Comey and the Russians and all this other stuff, like who who really knows? Yeah, and and sleeping um, so, in Wisconsin, not going to Wisconsin to campaign, that may have hurt too. You know? Yeah, that was uh, that was not great. That was not that was not great. All right, let's look ahead to uh, instead of talking about 2016 forever, let's look ahead to this current uh election you had a tweet that you put out trump's bad battleground state polls uh and uh so what's your uh explain that what you were getting at in that tweet sure so um i wrote uh as you know a lot of uh journalism work has disappeared so i've been cut down to once a month at the week they're wonderful that they're keeping me on at all um but i wrote a piece about how trump's electoral edge has like kind of disappeared um, and, uh, I'll tell you not all the, you know, the, the professional modelers don't necessarily agree with me about this. I'm just looking at polls. Um, and it, and it looks like Biden's national margin is about the same as it is in the most important swing states. Um, which, which to me makes it much less likely that he's going to win the popular vote, but lose the electoral college again. Um, and again, I'm, I'm actually just for complete transparency. I'm a little bit out on a limb here in terms of this analysis. <laughs> Because the the Nate Silvers of the world don't don't see it this way because they have their models. Um, but what I'm seeing is that Biden leads in Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, uh, even North Carolina by about the same margin that he's that he's leading in the national polls. Um, and so the, the the battleground polling for Trump is just it's just dreadful. You know, uh, he his his polling average he's behind um, in almost every single. Um, consequential swing state. Um, he, he leads in, in Ohio. Uh, he leads in Iowa, if you still consider that a swing state. <clears throat> and he trails pretty much everywhere else. Um, if you're just taking a straight average of the last like four public polls that were released and you're not doing any fancy sort of adjusting for the pollster's uh, reputation or this or that, just take the averages, which is all that's available to anyone right now. Um, he's in bad shape. I mean, like if you if you took the polling averages um, and you plug them into an election model, um, Biden would win anywhere right now from like 351 to about 405 electoral votes. Um, and so Trump is behind in so many different places that he absolutely must win to, to be reelected. Um, that they're like what the reigning attitude in the White House right now should be just like absolute like 24 seven dawn to dust panic. <laughs> Uh, because they're because they're bad, like the polling is really bad for him. Um, I think people are so traumatized by 2016 uh, that they think this polling is just like a mirage or something, um, and it and it's not. 
You know, I mean, the, the, some of the state polling was a little bit off in 2016. Uh, I think in part because they stopped polling some of the, the states that flipped in the week before the election. Um, but the national polling was spot on. It was spot on the whole time. Um, and uh, that, that's been true for a long time. And Biden is up six, seven, maybe even eight points right now in the national polling. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm as disappointed as, as anyone that Biden is the nominee, but he's, he's, he looks to be in a really good position right now. Uh, and what are some of these key swing states? Uh, just r- rattle off a few of them that uh, Biden said. Yeah, sure. So um, you take, you know, you take the three states uh, from the, the the blue wall, the, the so-called blue wall that the Trump won: um, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Um, the the polling in, in Pennsylvania and Michigan is so bad for Trump that if I was a Trump strategist, I would just write them off. Um, I, I in which two states? Trump... Uh, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania? Did you say? No, no, Pennsylvania and Michigan. Okay, gotcha. um, the, the, the polls there have been consistently bad. Um, Trump has not really led um, any reputable public poll in either of those states all year. Um, and the, 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 the good polls that are coming in are anywhere from like Biden plus four, Biden plus eight, sometimes even more than that. Um, but uh, you freeze the 2016 map um, and you add Pennsylvania and Michigan to it, Democrats still lose. So they need to pick up one state um, out of the following group, right? It's uh, Wisconsin, Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, uh, Georgia, or <laughs> this is getting a little bit deep into the weeds here. If Democrats, because there's two states in this country that split their electoral votes by congressional district, um, that's Maine and Nebraska, and, uh, and Clinton lost uh, Nebraska's second district the second and main second district um if democrats could win uh pennsylvania michigan and they took both of those districts in nebraska and Maine, they would also win but i think the more likely path is you take one out of uh out of arizona wisconsin north carolina florida um or, or even ohio which looks competitive right now based on the polling so you're looking at a situation where I, you know if i'm the biden if i'm the trump campaign uh, I'm just, I'm writing off Pennsylvania and Michigan. You know, maybe I invest there um, to lure Biden into spending money and time there, um, which he should anyway. But, uh, but I don't think that, I don't think anybody in Trump world seriously thinks that they're going to win Pennsylvania or Michigan. Um, and so the, the whole election really comes down um, to this, this set of like four or five states um, and, and Biden leads everywhere right now. And so it's and- like, and presuming that Biden holds on all to all the states that Hillary Clinton won, like, Minnesota or New Hampshire, right, right, um, and the poll the polling looks just just dreadful for Trump in those states. Uh, there's not been a lot of public polling of, of Minnesota, but um, there, you know Biden's up by double digits there in the polling that we do have. New Hampshire, Biden's doing very well. There's just there's not a plausible candidate for a blue state to flip to red, um, and so you're kind of assuming the map is frozen um, from 2016, and then. You're, you're flipping X number of states from, from, from red to blue. And there has not been any election um, in the last 150 years in which fewer than two states have flipped um, between the parties between elections. Um, the 2012 was one of the lows of only two states changed hands. Um, but I think, it's, it's, I think it's like really, really unlikely that it's going to be only two this time. And um, so, you know, like, I, you know, Nobody should be complacent, right? Like there's all sorts of factors that are working against Democrats from voter suppression um, to whatever, you know, chicanery that they're going to pull around the pandemic with vote by mail, you know, all this stuff. Like there's all sorts of reasons why there are structural obstacles to, to Democratic power. Um, but the, uh, I think the most consequential change in American politics right now is that Arizona seems to have flipped blue, like just. It seems to have done what Virginia did between 2004 and 2008, which is that it went suddenly from like a, a, a Republican-leaning purple state to becoming a, 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 a Democratic-leaning purple state sort of overnight. Mm. Um, the, the Senate candidate, there's a Senate election in Arizona this year where, where Mc, uh, Martha McSally, who was a, uh, appointed to her seat, um, is going up against uh, Mark Kelly, who's the wife. Uh, sorry, the husband of uh, uh, her name is escaping me right now, but the, the congresswoman who was shot yeah. mm-hmm. in, in the early in the Obama, yeah, um, and he's like he's like an astronaut, super popular. I mean, he's leading that race by eight, nine points, um, which is just 
it just would not have been possible in the political universe that existed before 2018. Um, and so that means that Democrats can still lose Wisconsin, um, where I think the polling is not as great. If they win Arizona and they take back Michigan and Pennsylvania, it's over. Game set match. Well, I, I listen to what you say, and I look at how the Republicans are responding. And we see response uh, where these rallies to open up the state rallies targeting Democratic governors and Confederate flags, Nazi uh, signs and swastikas, uh, people with guns. And it seems as though they're convinced that this is the way to win an election. And yeah. it's either a sign of utter lunacy on the part of the, the Republicans or a sign that it's really scary in our country right now uh, if they are correct so how do you see it i mean i think that the like public opinion on this issue is still very very strongly in favor of um of ongoing restrictions if somewhat loosened as opposed to you know the, the sort of like pure like i need to go to the barber and i don't want to wear a mask crowd you know like i think a really big majority of Americans, you know, three quarters of Americans, um, think that we have to maintain some changes in our daily lives, um, changes which we all agree um, suck and we hate them, <laughs> but we don't want to die and we don't want our like parents and, and grandparents to die, um, and so we're willing to do them for a certain period of time. I think moving forward, um, I, I think that the Trump Trump's messaging on this has been completely incoherent from the start. Um, in the sense that, you know, he's tweeting out, you know, like liberate Michigan, like liberate Wisconsin. Um, at the same time as his own CDC is standing by their guidelines about when to reopen. And then he went out and like yelled at Brian Kemp for opening Georgia too soon. Right. So it's like your average independent voter who doesn't pay that much attention to politics, I think is going to have a really difficult time reading the signal of where the Trump administration is on this except that they're bad at everything, you know? Um, and it, it's, it's such a missed opportunity for, for Trump because if he had just taken the whole situation seriously and soberly from the beginning, whatever he decided to do, I think he would have gotten a lot more uh, buy-in from the general public if he had not dismissed it as like a democratic hoax to take down his presidency, um, if he had worked harder, if he had like um, taken seriously the concerns of healthcare professionals. And that's true, even if like, even if the response was, you know, in retrospect, we're like, well, maybe we went too far to prevent a disaster, but it was, it seemed like the right thing to do at the time. Um, I think he still would have come ahead in that scenario because he would have appeared as a person who cared about whether people lived or died. Um, he, he doesn't seem to care about that right now. Um, and so the, the other piece of this is, that, you know, I don't know if you, I'm sure you've seen what's been happening in Illinois the last few days. Um, is, you know, we're moving into phase three. Um, some things are going to be reopened. There's actually not that much daylight between what Illinois is planning to do over the next month um, and what Georgia and Florida are planning to do over the next month. Um, there's a difference in degree, but not really in kind, right? It's like, we can't keep going like this with everything shut down indefinitely, right? It's going to be just a, a generation-defining catastrophe. Um, and it, it's like, so if all of the states, Democratic and, and Republican, are doing roughly the same thing, um, and then we still end up with a, with a big problem in the fall or the winter. Again, that's going to come down on Trump because we didn't put into place the testing and tracing systems, you know, that they've deployed in countries that have successfully fought the virus. Um, and so I just don't think that he's going to be able to single out, you know, governors X, Y, and Z, because the reality is like, you know, Mike DeWine in, in Ohio, Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, like Larry Hogan in Maryland, there are Republican governors who are taking it seriously and are, are taking the role of public servants seriously. Um, so I just don't know. I don't really know how they thread that needle. I think like if we have another spike in the fall, um, it's not just going to be like a human tragedy and I really don't want it to happen, but I think it's going to be really bad for the Trump administration because what, what their line has been up until this point is like, we've got this under control. The economy is going to make this V-shaped recovery. And then we're going to get on with our lives. And who do you trust more to turn the economy back on than Donald Trump? Yeah. And, and I think that by September or October, that message is going to be um, not just wrong, but like obviously hollow. Because even if you are, even if you're an, an optimist, um, a lot of industries are not coming back and 
until we have a vaccine or a, or a better treatment. So, I, you know, I, I'm just always at a loss for what, what it is that they're thinking in the White House, but, but what they're doing is just not working. Well, I'll, I'll close it by saying this. To the point you made, uh, that if Donald Trump had been a little more conventional in his thinking and approached the crisis that he faced with a, in a rational way, listening to scientists, listening to doctors, abiding by their cautions uh, and their advice. Uh, if he had been that kind of president, he or a politician, he never would have been elected in the first place. That is, everything right. you just said about Donald <laughs> Trump is the opposite of who he is. And he's, you know, incapable. I remember that first speech this, this is how wimpy Democrats are, David. This is how wimpy the mainstream <laughs> media is. And Donald Trump, I remember that first speech that he gave where it was, uh, what was it, uh, to Congress and uh, his first State of the Union speech. And he was more or less serious. And everybody was like, oh, my God, they, they all just want to run. The mainstream media Dems just want to always show, prove how open-minded they are. You know, they embraced him. And, like, within a day or two, I don't know, he was being the idiot that he, you know, tweeting and making fun of people. And so it lasted yeah. for, like, less than a news cycle. It just, yeah, he is who he is. It, it, it's like that, you know, the the the, the meme about you know, this is the day that Donald Trump became president. And I think it's from uh, Fareed Zakaria very early on in the administration uh, when he like bombed something, you know. And it's like we keep waiting for him to turn into a president, and he's just not going to do it. No, he's just never going to do it. He's, he's and the, the irony is, he would be a much better bet at re-election if they could just swap him out for like a like some idiot that looks like him who could go out and be like, my fellow Americans, I care about your pain and suffering. I'm really sorry this is happening to you. This is our moment to be, you know, to be strong and resilient and have the courage. And I know you're going through a hard time. We're going to do everything we can to help you. Uh, red states, blue states, you know, we're all in this together. But yeah. the dude just can't do it. No. He just can't do it. Can't do it. You know? Can't do it. <laughs> all right, David Ferris, the name of the book, The Kids Are All Left. Uh, we should. I shouldn't let so much time escape in between your appearances. It's so much fun talking to you. So uh, people, That's great. buy the book, read the book, and we'll bring you back on sooner than the last time, David, and we'll continue the conversation, all right? Look, I got nothing going on until August, so anytime <laughs> you want me on the show... <laughs> Uh, please just let me know. There you go. <laughs> you shouldn't say it there. You should go, I'm so busy, Pat. I'm, I'll try to I'm squeeze so you in. But... <laughs> All right. <laughs> Stay safe. That's the great David Ferris. And that's another Ben Jarofsky bonus show. Take care, everybody.